Now, elections have consequences, and so if you have a Republican majority, hopefully those advances are more conservative. But what happens is, is over time, we've, we've concentrated so much power in the office of the Speaker uh, that, that most of the other committees, even the chairman of committees of jurisdiction, have very little power. And so we've got to fix that. If Congress is ever going to work, it's, uh, we have to fix it. And, and if people are out there listening right now and they serve in their state legislature, this, is not, this doesn't even come close to the normal process in a state legislature where you offer an amendment, you get it heard, you figure out uh, how to, to build coalitions, it's non-existent. Here it's all about uh, convincing the speaker, uh, well, more accurately, the speaker staff uh, <laughs> on what needs to advance and, uh, and all, all of it transpires from there. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this is the season finale. Uh, we're extremely excited to bring our final episode of the year and this season, season two of Moment of Truth, to you guys. I think we're going to have exactly the same amount of episodes in season one as we did in season two, uh, serendipitously so. Before I get to who we had on, the very special guest, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you're going to find all sorts of fantastic stuff in the new year, new programs we're deploying, the backlog of this show, and the advent of season three. Go to AmericanMoment.org slash join if you want to get involved in the fight. Uh, you fill out that form, and you and I will meet, and we'll figure out exactly how to plug you in immediately into the fight here in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Who did we bring to you for the season finale of this show? Uh, a very very, very cool guest. We had on today the former chief of staff to President Donald Trump, Congressman Mark Meadows, who insisted before the episode started that I call him Mark. And I just quite wasn't able to do that because I have an enormous, enormous amount of respect for the man. Um, and so uh, I call him chief. And he was obviously uh, one of the most instrumental people helping shape what was the best year of the Trump administration, which was its final year. Uh, Mark's work is that of a true public servant from his days in the U.S. House of Representatives to his time as President Trump's chief of staff to his current role as the Conservative Partnership Institute's senior partner, Mark has worked tirelessly to shift the focus from the desires of Washington politicians to the needs of the American people. Working with the House Freedom Caucus, which he co-founded in 2015, he helped strip key provisions of Obamacare as it crushed the American people with sky-high premiums and fewer health care choices. He helped pass the historic tax cuts of 2017, and he changed the dynamic of the Republican conference and then helped oust then House Speaker John Boehner. Mark and his fellow Freedom Caucus members would go on to successfully defend President Trump from the bogus Russia collusion attacks and impeachment. By the time he became chief of staff in 2020, Mark had already spent countless hours working with the 45th president to give the American people a seat at the table. Mark was President Trump's gatekeeper and top advisor, steering the White House through one of the most tumultuous years in co American history as COVID-19 lockdowns, race riots, and other assertions of leftist power ripped through the country. Uh, when he left government service in January 2021, he wanted to keep up the fight. That made CPI his obvious landing spot. As senior partner, he's helped lead CPI strategic initiatives on Capitol Hill with other partner organizations and with grassroots activists across the country. Uh, in December 2021, he released his book, The Chief's Chief, about his time in the White House. 
Above all, Mark is a deeply committed Christian and has continuously demonstrated a devotion to his faith even in the highest pressure environments. And before coming to Washington in 2013 to represent North Carolina's 11th district, he had spent nearly 30 years creating growth and value by specializing in startups and business reorganization as well as his real estate business. Him and his wife, Debbie, who's also absolutely lovely, have homeschooled their two children, now grown, and have two granddaughters. He is an exceptionally kind man who's always been exceptionally generous to us, a bunch of kids just running around D.C. and the Conservative Partnership Institute trying to do something special here at American Moment. He spent time with uh, members of our fellowship programs before, you know, these kids fresh out of college or having never gone, who uh, are not the the fanciest power players in D.C., but people he believes in investing in as part of the next generation of talent. We're extremely grateful to be able to work with him every single day here, and we're extremely grateful he would join us for a moment of truth. We'll go now to Mark Meadows. Chief, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for all that you do. And uh, not just with the podcast, but obviously the investment in that next generation of conservative leader. Uh, your voice is not only one that is needed, but it's it's welcomed by a lot of us that have a little bit more gray hair than you do. Well, I, I sincerely appreciate that. None of it would have been possible without what you guys have built here at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I think you you came to CPI, obviously, right after the administration. Uh, and that was sort of right around the time that that we were also setting everything yeah, up to get, yeah. get our organization launched. So it was a, it was a lot of like, oh, I, I just ran into Mark Meadows in the elevator, <laughs> <laughs> which just happened here. And you were at our yeah. launch party and everything. Um, and so you've been an incredibly kind friend to us over the years. I'd, I'd love to, for those young conservatives, uh, dig a little bit into your own story of how you got to the point where you are today. You have a, a, a very storied career in politics that's not particularly long, but it's basically changed the course of world history several times over. Mm. Uh, would love to hear kind of what those early days were. When did you first get interested in politics to begin with uh, and sort of the trajectory that brought you here? Well, I mean, a lot of the people that you uh, talk with on a regular basis, I mean, they've got on their bucket list is to come to, to Washington, D.C., change the way that we do business uh, for the better. And uh, that was never on my bucket list. I was a business guy, uh, you know, signed the front of a paycheck. Uh, and so was one of the few guys that when I got here, uh, I, I thought all you did was you put people together in a room. You got the people that were no's and the people that were yeses and the people that were maybes. And you find, found common ground. Well, that's not the way that uh, Congress actually works. That's certainly not the way that Washington, D.C. works. Uh, and I had come uh, out of a business career because I was concerned about where our country was headed uh literally uh didn't necessarily want to be a member of congress but was just concerned that there was not a strong leadership voice uh ran uh in 2011 started a campaign that lasted a little over 18 months and tell me about that district had there been an incumbent that had retired had he uh there was actually a democrat holding the seat mm -hmm. uh he Schuler, uh which was probably at that time considered a blue dog democrat more of a conservative Democrat. They are non-existent, as you know, now on Capitol Hill. But but Heath uh, had uh, served for three terms in, in Congress and was still there. Uh, I decided to run and uh, redistricting had happened. And so he ended up retiring and his chief of staff ran for the position. So that was the first person that I actually ran, ran against. And uh, 
the people of Western North Carolina decided to send me to Congress. And uh, when I got here, it was uh, very different than uh, I had imagined or at least uh, thought that I knew. You know, mm-hmm. you, you read about Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You read uh, how, you know, how a bill becomes law. Uh, it's very different than uh, you see in the halls of Congress. You know that all too well. <laughs> you get to see it up close and personal. It's still very strange why I do. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, c- congressional races uh, have changed a lot in the last 40 years. I think it used to be the case that, you know, someone uh, who was local to a district could sort of throw their hat in the ring. And if they worked hard, they might be. Well, now they're this enormous, expensive affair, often right. millions of dollars being spent. And, and for a political outsider, it makes it all the more impressive um, when they can get across the finish line in their first election. Right. And that was the right. first campaign you'd it ever was, run. It was. Uh, yeah. t- tell me a little bit about just what that process was like. Who, who'd you call? Like, <laughs> How does one go about doing well, that? Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, when, when you run, you actually go and try to do the very best you can to uh, hit all the leaders in the area. My particular district was 17 counties. So I was uh, about five hours from one end to the other. So I went everywhere, put uh, literally, I think, over 100,000 miles on my my car uh, trying to to go in and build up kind of the grassroots support. But to your point on how difficult it is, you know, I'd spent a lot of time. I was... I was in the real estate business, so it gave me more flexibility than the average person that had to to stop and punch a clock. Uh, I could do some of that uh, via cell phone on the road. And uh, and yet, uh, after many months of going around and getting consensus, we thought, we did a poll. And I I mean, I thought I was going to be off the charts. And I mean, I get this poll and... I'm barely registering double digits. I think it was like 12%. Well, mm-hmm. I was devastated. You know, I figured I couldn't work that. Now, was 12% first place or was it a Well, no, it wasn't even first place. That was a, and so, um, but people are looking for someone who's authentic and willing to fight for them. And, um, and for me, it was all about not coming here to get a job mm-hmm. as much as it was coming here to make a change. And, uh, and and so eight people in a primary, um, you know, six months later or so, we were able to get our, our, our message across to, you know, to the individual that's listening to this or viewing this right now. Uh, it has changed. And you're right. It's changed so much. Uh, social media is where it's at. I mean, and um, if you can really understand, uh, you know, that you've got to reach them with different levels of communication. I mean, I can, I can tell you, we could probably have named uh, the podcast that were listened to when I ran for Congress. Now you, you know, you have a plethora of, of things to choose from. And so uh, the, the real key is people want someone who, who really will not only articulate, but stand up for them on Main Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if it's standing for Main Street instead of K Street, which is a special interest uh, initiatives here in Washington, D.C., uh, it normally bodes well for them. Mm-hmm. So you get to Washington, D.C., and, and you think you're Mr. Smith in Washington. What was that first splash of cold water when you realized things did not work quite how you thought? Well, they you, you know, first, you got to figure out where the bathrooms are. 
you know. So, uh, uh, but I think uh, and this is something you know. I always try to give a listener if I'm giving a speech or giving uh, uh, giving an interview like this, give the listener something that they won't hear anywhere else. Uh, and so, uh, um, probably one of the the cold water in the face moments for me was when I was actually working on a particular bill and my freshman year uh, literally uh, had been there less than six months worked on this idea for a bill and and I don't even remember the the bill right now mm-hmm. but I had worked on this bill um, went to some in leadership and they they like the idea. Oh, yeah, this is a great idea. We think we're going to move it. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to get my name up there. I'm going to get this uh, bill moved, only to find out that a few weeks later they were moving the bill, but it was no longer my bill. It had been given to someone else, uh, a member from Kansas at that particular time. And and I said, well, this this member of Congress, it's not their bill. They didn't write it. Yeah, but they have something similar. And I said, well, not that I could find. And uh, and I found out very quickly that uh, the way that power is consolidated here is doing favors for people, even if that means taking original ideas from other people and and trading it uh like you would an old coin. And so practically the reason that that works that way, even though it's horrible, obviously, is because uh, Congress doesn't do much at all. And that's usually a good thing, depending on, uh, uh, you know, who's it gets in charge. More, it gets better and better <laughs> yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, the, it, on the occasion that they, they are interested in doing something because it doesn't piss off their corporate donors or whatever, they want to give the, the win, quote unquote, to one of the good old boys, one of the people who've been here for a long time and, and, and uh, you know, can go back to the district and say, see, I achieved this. Is that is that the reason why? Oh, it it's 100 percent. I mean, and, and for me, I thought that giving a win uh, to somebody who's been here or someone who's in a competitive district, they'll do that from time to time. I didn't have a problem with that as long as it was their idea. Yeah. This was my first <laughs> realization that yeah. most of the things they get done, it's not their idea. Mm-hmm. This one happened to be mine, but mm-hmm. more often than not, it's an idea that they may have from a leadership mm-hmm. standpoint, and they just dole it out to someone and say – well, here you can be the original sponsor of this bill, and we'll get it passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's uh, it, it. Really, you know, if you think of communism, and you think of of that in in legislative terms, this was just yeah. more of a communistic yeah. approach. Let yeah. somebody else do all the hard work, take it, and take credit for it. Yeah. Uh, it 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 was not for the common good. It was for, <laughs> it, it was for somebody's good, yeah. but it certainly wasn't mine. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something. So, okay, I've always thought that the, uh, and this is the theory behind CPI, um, certainly, is that DC is explained uh, less by political science than it is by sociology. And so I'm a, a little bit curious. 
you guys, uh, the, the class that you came in on uh, was elected during this Tea Party wave. Right. What, what, tell me a little bit about what that dynamics were. What, what did the set of members that you were elected with uh, uh, feel like? Did you guys feel like a cadre, like a class of people taking the city on? Did that take time? How, walk me through yeah, that. Yeah, so a little bit of that. You know, interestingly enough, there was really two different waves, a 210 and a 212 mm-hmm. uh, wave of, quote, Tea Party conservatives. And, and it felt like taking on the Washington establishment. We thought we were coming just to provide reinforcements for that class that had gone before us. Uh, but interestingly enough, by the time you're here two years, uh, how you campaign and how you actually uh, conduct yourself here in Washington, D.C. from a conservative value standpoint, sometimes uh, they're mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it that way. And and uh, and so there was really a reinforcement, but it was it was more a function of we keep saying we're going to cut spending. We keep saying we're going to prioritize conservative values, and yet we're not doing it. In fact, the common thing they would say is, let's live to fight another day. Well, Who's killing you? (laughs) Well, I can tell you it's the Washington establishment that kills you, but the other is there's never a fight. And I think that's what the American people, they they want uh, a fight legislatively, Mm -hmm. obviously, is what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. But they want to make sure that their priorities are represented uh, in – in Washington, D.C. And so for me, it meant those North Carolina values were represented here, not D.C. values represented mm-hmm. back home in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the the first time you met or spent any meaningful time with, um, you know, your favorite person and you being his favorite person, John Boehner. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I don't think would classify it that way. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, John Boehner was a speaker. He was uh uh, had been here a long time, but it, it kind of goes to a deeper um, point that I was just making with how people progress over time. John Boehner was part of what they called the Gang of Seven. People don't realize that. In fact, they may have to Google it. But uh, um, there's so many gangs in Washington. Yeah, but the traffic. Gang of Seven back then they were taking on the the House Post Office. They were taking on the House Bank, and these were special perks that members of Congress uh, actually could take advantage of. And so John Boehner was part of that that group that took it on. Uh, he had worked his way up to become speaker. And, uh, and with that, uh, you know, it's whenever you concentrate the power in in the speaker's office, whether it's John Boehner or anyone else, you uh, it is not good for a representative form of government. Mm-hmm. So I guess then it, I'm going to say a sentence here. You tell me if it's if it's on the money. Um, it doesn't matter who the speaker is. What matters is what the speakership has become. Does the role would the role corrupt basically anyone? And, you know, you have these horse races over who's going to be speaker. Is that almost missing the point? Well, it does miss the point. I think what for me is uh whether it in that particular time was a John Boehner or, you know, as you know, uh, the House is going through really who's going to be their speaker as the Republicans take over the majority uh, in in literally just a, a few days. Um, it, it's putting in process where every member is able to advance their legislative priorities for their district. So if you you represent a district where it's high tech, 
you want those members that can represent their district and the high-tech industry, whether they're Republican or Democrats, to be able to advance that. Now, elections have consequences, and so if you have a Republican majority, hopefully those advances are more conservative. But what happens is, is over time, we've, we've concentrated so much power in the office of the Speaker uh, that that most of the other committees, even the chairman of committees of jurisdiction, have very little power. And so we've got to fix that. If Congress is ever going to work, it's we have to fix it. And, and if people are out there listening right now and they serve in their state legislature, this is not this doesn't even come close to the normal process in a state legislature where you offer an amendment, you get it heard, you figure out uh, how to, to build coalitions, it's non-existent. Here it's all about uh, convincing the speaker, uh, well, more accurately, the speaker staff uh, <laughs> on what needs to advance, and, uh, and all, all of it transpires from there. So why do you think that consolidation of power happened? Yeah, I think a part of it happened just as a natural uh, efficiency mode. You know, so originally uh, Congress was designed to be a lot more laborious than it is exciting and uh, and extemporaneous. And so when you look at at Congress, uh, it was much easier for there to be a negotiation that happens just with the speaker, the speaker, and the leader of the Senate. I know when I was in the White House, um, I was surprised at how little input uh, we received from rank-and-file members. It was all either uh, Leader McConnell, um, Leader Schumer, uh, Speaker Pelosi, or, or at that time we were, when I was there, we were in the minority in the House, so it would have been Leader McCarthy. But very little input from anybody else. And so everybody can say that their pet project was X, Y, or Z. We were talking to the four corners, as they call it, on A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, having that vantage point, you kind of understood. You know, it would have been much more difficult considering how busy we're. Almost impossible, yeah. Because you had come from the House to meet with 100 members about 100 different priorities. But that's where, uh, yes, it would have been. So so you see the efficiency of wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. But here's what's incumbent upon us. It is more important to create a process where maybe you're talking with a leader on the Democrat side or Republican side, but they should have already had the input from their rank and file Mm -hmm. members. Uh, Listen, there's 535 CEOs of companies here, uh, 100 senators and 435 uh, members of the House. Those 535 CEOs, uh, out of that, if there's 20 that influence this town, uh, I would be surprised. So, you know, is it 10? Is it 15? Well, let's, so let's take the high end and say it's 20. Uh, how do the 20 necessarily represent, uh, the vast majority of Americans? Mm-hmm. Well, that leaves, you know, 515 on the, on the sidelines. And so the question is, how do you become one of the 20? Well, uh, wait a very long time. <laughs> or uh, like in my case, we created the Freedom Caucus to create a point of leverage. And so uh, that uh, creating of leverage was to try to make sure we had a seat at the table. 
when we were founding American Moment, I feel like I've been able to go back and kind of in a cute way, point to five conversations that led to the creation of this organization. Tell me a little bit about some of the first conversations that in your mind seeded the idea of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, well, I, it really gets back, uh, you know, we all have nicknames for different bills and different processes here. Uh, we were actually voting on a, uh, an area uh, on a bill called the Cromnibus. So we're in, <laughs> in the season right now, whether it's going to be a CR or an omnibus. Well, this was a creative one in that we were doing a CR for part of it and an omnibus or a minibus. We called it the Cromnibus, the CR on the front of a bus. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, many of us conservatives called it the crummy bus because they were putting all kinds of stuff in there that just didn't really make any sense. And so there was a rule on that. I can remember I was on the House floor talking to the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Hal Rogers, the member from Kentucky. And as the chairman was there, uh, they were voting on the rule. Well, I look up, he looks up and he's this this rule. It may not pass. And it was all of a sudden, you know, there was panic on the floor and it's going every different direction. Well, a number of the conservatives uh, had voted a different way on that rule. In fact, if all the conservatives had gotten together, that rule would not have passed. Um, I went to a good friend of mine, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan. You know, Jim and I are, are close personal friends and said, listen, if we're going to lose, we're going to lose in an organized fashion. Let's get together. Let's create a group of people that are willing to vote as a block and vote together. Uh, he got uh, four names. I got four names. We made those phone calls. And so the founding members, there was nine founding members of the House Freedom Caucus, but it came from. A, a vote on which we didn't prevail, uh, but we saw an opportunity to kind of band together and make a difference and create leverage points. And so uh, a lot of that, uh, that actually happened in 2014-15. And uh, many people think the House Freedom Caucus has been around for decades, but you know, <laughs> we, we, we're not even coming up uh, you know, on our 10-year anniversary yet. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's it's been around the entire time I've been right, paying attention to right. politics, no, so it may yeah, as well yeah. have existed yeah. for 50 years. Um, obviously, one of the most famous things that the House Freedom Caucus uh, helped cause, and, and you specifically helped cause, was um, uh, the removal of John Boehner as the Speaker of the House. Uh, just real quick, uh, how'd that work? How'd you, how'd, how'd you manage to completely well, change the presidential line of succession? Well, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, it's not something that I talk about on a regular basis. It, and, and it had nothing to do with John Boehner as a person. It had really to do with more of this, this infrastructure that was there that put so much power in, in one person's hands. Uh, I was looking for what one member could do. And so I was going through the Jefferson Manual looking at uh, privileged motions. And and at that time, you know, it was just really frustrated. I felt like, well, gosh, here I gave up a great career to, to come and serve in Congress. I'm not planning to serve you know, more than three or four terms. I'm not going to be here long enough to make a difference. And yet we've got to figure out a way to to send a clear message and uh you know when anybody stands up for their people back home uh this town and specifically many in leadership will start to to really put a vice grip on 
on the, the the jugular veins of of members of Congress trying to get them to actually just become part of the establishment. And uh, uh, so I found this little known uh, motion to vacate. Uh, I think I Googled it and there was only a couple of references to motion to vacate the chair in uh, on Google. Uh, just on that. How many members that you were serving with at the time do you think had ever looked into parliamentary procedure with the level of detail that you were looking into? Well, I don't know that any had at that time because now everybody's talking about the motion to vacate. You know, like I say, uh, one of the things that they're wanting to put forth is actually to put that back in the rules. It had been there for 100 years, had only been used in 1928 by Joe Cannon, uh, of whom the Cannon office buildings are named after. You think there's going to be a Meadows office building one day? No, (laughs) Uh, nor do I want one. but, uh, But I can say Joe Cannon was there. He used it to really do a vote of confidence. So he had put it forward basically saying, are you guys with me or not? And it put everybody on record as having to be for Joe Cannon. He was uh, the speaker at that particular time. Uh, interestingly enough, he was gone in less than two years. So. <laughs> but that that being said, I came up with this little known fact. Thomas Massey actually worked on helping me perfect it. Uh, I figured that my name was going to have to be the only name on it. Uh, but Thomas, behind the scenes, was helping me make sure that, uh, uh, you know, it, it was efficient with its words. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. And yeah, he's a smart cookie. <laughs> he's a real smart cookie. I mean, hey, listen, I, I don't know that your listeners uh, would know this, but uh, – he actually owns more patents than any other member of Congress, mm-hmm. 31 and counting. Mm-hmm. When I served with him originally, he sat right next to me. Uh, we came in about the same time. He actually had 29 patents. And so, I, you know, I bumped it up to 30 and he goes, no, I'm up to 31. So uh, 31 <laughs> and counting. But real smart guy. But also what I love about Thomas is, is that he doesn't take himself too serious. Mm-hmm. That's one of the problems with many members of Congress. They, they take themselves far too serious. And uh, he's got a great sense of humor, a great mind. And on that particular time was very helpful in coming up with uh, just a very um, – two-page motion to vacate the chair. When I filed it and put it in the hopper, we didn't even actually end up voting on it. But the minute I put it in the hopper, I mean, it was like ants all over the House floor. Uh, it was it was unheard of, historic, and yet at the same time, uh, hopefully something that uh, only gets used extremely, extremely rare. <laughs> so you do that. How did Washington react to you the day after? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah, know, you yeah. were already a troublemaker. You were you were, yeah. you were you were an active member, which yeah. you know that alone puts you in a top decile if right. you do anything at all in this town, right. as opposed to just like you know drink beer and go to fancy dinners. Right. Um, and, and and then and then you you did that. Yeah. Uh, what what was it like? Again, I'm curious about the sociology of it. How yeah, were you treated? It, it wasn't it wasn't a fun day. I, <laughs> I still remember it was July 28th and. 2015, uh, when I put it in, I think the headline was Meadows Army of One. Uh, it was a lot of my colleagues really upset, even members of the Freedom Caucus. I had a few members of the Freedom Caucus that wanted to throw me out of the very group that I'd helped found. Um, you know, because uh, fighting for something you believe in uh, is 
not necessarily something that is encouraged in this town. Uh, you get paid based on words, a lot of rhetoric, uh, but very little action. For me, it's all about you have to take the action to make it happen. And so uh, um, there were a lot more people willing to own up to it and, mm-hmm. and say they embraced it uh, 59 days later when John Boehner resigned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on day one, day two, it was uh, – uh, I think – well, let me just share this. I, we had a conference there, and uh, uh, at one time I was sitting in the back where I normally sat. And, I mean, there was no one else around me. And, <laughs> and, You're uh, radioactive. Yeah, and, and I, I share this story. It may have not been that particular day, but it's indicative when you uh, when you are radioactive. And Jim Jordan comes in. He says, oh, Mark, you're sitting with all your friends. <laughs> and that was uh, – um, you know, Jim, Jim was always one that was willing to, uh, to stand, uh, with me, even if he didn't necessarily agree on the tactic mm-hmm. and, uh, um, uh, and, and that for that, I'm forever grateful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you right after, you know, basically causing the removal of the Republican speaker of the house, uh, didn't really decide to have a quiet few years after that. You got very involved with the campaign of one Donald Trump, right. um, at yeah. a, period of time specifically where it was not easy to do that right. um, and right. uh, and there was a lot of price to be paid um, both at the moment after and especially if you had been wrong yeah what was it that made you decide to back president trump as as thoroughly and as early as you did well i think probably the biggest thing is uh his style was very different than mine mm-hmm. you know you can no tell, <laughs> you, you can just tell the way that we we interact you know here was a guy from from new york a business guy that was used to really getting in your face and you know i'm i might be someone that drives down the road and you know, I'll wave at a dog on the side of the road. You know, <laughs> so it's just. Uh, uh, but really, it's all about changing Washington D.C. Uh, you know, members come here, they get elected, and they get Potomac fever. Mm-hmm. They come across that that river, and they lose their ever loving minds. Mm-hmm. And and he had seen it up close and personal that the average uh, man and woman on Main Street felt like that Washington D.C. was no longer fighting for them, and mm-hmm. he was willing to. F- fight for the forgotten man and woman and so to that extent it actually made a, a huge difference and uh and so campaigning with him it was very different he's the only guy that i know of that actually his personal plane was nicer than air force one <laughs> so uh, you know so as uh, we traveled uh, obviously across north carolina being a swing state and one that he had to have uh, i got to know him and and i saw people come from all over i mean people would travel hours and hours to show up at a rally because they said finally someone's willing to to speak for me i think the thing that you know there was a union worker i think i talked to in pennsylvania and i said you know why is it that you support uh donald trump and this was actually during his reelect and he says well he's just like me. Now, this is a a (laughs) union worker who said he's just like me in Pennsylvania. And um, but a lot of people felt that way, whether Mm -hmm. they were single moms or or union workers or engineers or uh, CEOs of company. They could identify with one aspect and they all had one common bond. They loved their country and believed that it was eroding uh, away right before their face. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's interesting that the movement that that you were a part of upon getting elected to Congress, the Tea Party, um, you know, had been uh, identified with folks like yourself, Jim Jordan, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, others, uh, was a related but but distinct movement um, right. to the one that President Trump led in, in 2016. What lesson did you learn from the fact that some of those other senators, awesome people, fantastic members of Congress, um, didn't win and that that he did how did it change the way you saw the world and saw the republican base maybe different public policy areas what 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 rethinking did it spark well i think probably the biggest lesson that we can learn from that is um people want outsiders to be their advocate Mm -hmm. and uh you can have strong conservatives and you mentioned you know a, a group of conservatives that honestly this town has not corrupted they're still strong conservatives willing to fight on behalf of their constituency but yet the belief that anything is going to change in Washington, D.C. is just not there. And and so here was an outsider willing to say, I'm willing to take it on instead of saying, I'm on the inside, I'm willing to take it on. Mm-hmm. Or I'm on the inside, sort of, I'm willing to take it on. But, but it's also one uh, really was about bringing back pride to who we are as an American. Well, the one thing that he tapped into, you know, who would have thought four words was, you know, make America great again was going to be this unbelievable selling point. And, and even less than that, who thought that those four words on a red cap with white printing <laughs> that was not necessarily designed by a, uh, a marketing genius out of, uh, the finest PR firms in New York was going to take this town by storm. And and not only did it take this town by storm, but you started to see red hats being worn by people uh, of all different walks of life, you know, and, uh, and, and I think the other part of that is, is for that younger generation, they're looking for something or somebody who is authentic. And, you could disagree with some of the style, you know, that President Trump had, uh, then candidate Trump. But the very fact that he was willing to shake things up, they said, well, uh, at least I can identify with someone who's willing to do that. So I think those are the lessons that are that are learned. Mm-hmm. Why did you become chief of staff? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, it's all about serving uh, our country. Uh, obviously, there are a number of people who uh, serve – uh, in that role as chief of staff. Yeah, it wasn't job security you were looking for. No, no, no. <laughs> At least with the House of Representatives, you get two-year terms. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, those chief of staff jobs, they come and go fairly quickly. But, I, I, you know, all of that is really about trying to, to be strong enough to be able to change the country for the better. And uh, serving the president uh, in that uh, position is certainly an honor. And yet, at the same time, uh, it doesn't come without its challenges. I mean, uh, the West Wing, uh, some people say, is more like the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I can see where some of that comes from. Now, some of that's always going to exist in any administration, but you were coming into one that had a very particular problem, which is that some of those early hires in the Trump administration were not people who supported President Trump's agenda. There's a ton of very in-the-weeds reasons for why that was the case. Um, but in that last year, year and a half, it was it was really a new administration because of folks like yourself and John McEntee and others that were brought in. Um, what was that like to have to root out the rats? Well, I think it's disappointing in one, I mean, in that 
you think, okay, you've got someone who wants to come in and drain the swamp, and yet uh, many of the hires that were recommended by people in in Washington D.C. just filled the swamp back up very mm-hmm. quickly, you know. And uh, uh, and so you mentioned Johnny McEntee did a great job of uh, making a number of recommendations uh, to the president for for staff changes. But I think the the other part of that is is um, it just shows the the big machine that's here in Washington D.C. That if you're not careful, that big machine uh, will will consume anybody from you know senators and House members to the president of the United States. And he listen, this was a business guy that had never run for office, was coming in to the highest office in the land as the 45th president of the United States, and he was getting all kinds of recommendations from uh, different people saying. Listen, hire this one. This is a good one. And 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 what do you do as a CEO? You hire people with expertise. Well, uh, you know, in that case, it was just a lot of people that served in previous administration. Mm-hmm. And all they were doing was biding, biding their time until there was a next Republican administration. And uh, and so I think the, the, the big discouragement to me was to say, uh, you know, if you came here to actually support uh, what was going to fundamentally change Washington D.C. You know why were you trying to do it the old way? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so uh, working through that, uh, certainly looking at a second administration. Uh, had uh, President Trump had a second administration, I know that we were making plans. A second uh, consecutive administration, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, valid. Uh, so as we we looked at that, we were planning to make some major changes just mm-hmm. to make sure that. That the swamp didn't consume uh, the hopes and dreams mm. of the American people. Yeah, it's um, you know one of the interesting tests of this experience. I think is that you know all around the country, you talk to people, including some people who are maybe um, you know conservative donors or people like yourself who run for Congress. They there's there's a phrase that gets trotted out a lot. I'm curious what your thoughts on it now. Oh, we should just run politics more like a business. <laughs> Do you think that's a a sentence that holds water much at this point based well, on your experience? Well, if you're talking about running it as a business, i.e. Uh, making a profit, I'm all for that. <laughs> uh, you know, Listen, Washington, D.C. is not going to be run as a business because it's a political animal. Uh, are there certain aspects of a business where you can say, sure, let's run it as a business if it's supporting the values of the people back home? But in ways, it is run like a business. Mm-hmm. It's it's big business for consultants, for, for special interest groups. And so the sad part about it is the way that you think about let's just run it as a business. We can think about it in a in a good way. But it's really all about big business. It's big business on, you know, the 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 people that help with campaigns. It's big business on pollsters, you know. And part of our problem is we send the same message over and over again, paying the same people over and over again. So for me, it's all about actually supporting businesses, small businesses on Main Street. And if you can do that uh, and do that in a real systemic way, that's what we need to be doing, but mm-hmm. operating it like a business, uh, you know, most of the decisions that get here and uh, get made here in Washington, D.C. would be thrown out of most boardrooms. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about the question of, of expertise then uh, at yeah. this point? I mean, you know, because I, I think one of the biggest reasons why 
the, the business analogy doesn't hold up, even if you have the right motives, is that the person with the best resume isn't necessarily the person you want for the job. Yeah. Um, you, values, Oftentimes it's not. Yeah. Often, and, and that's one of the things that you're doing in such a great way is bringing new energy and new, you know, it, give me someone who is skilled at being able to do things on uh, in a business perspective, someone with fresh new ideas. Let me train them versus having a resume that is so steeped in uh, the credentials of this particular town, therein is your point. You, you bring me a hundred people that have zero uh, connections to Capitol Hill. I can train them to be more effective than a hundred people that have been here with a resume that you would naturally just go to uh, immediately and, uh, because they've worked for this member or they've worked for that uh, committee, um, I would I would rather have someone that says, you know, dares to see things differently than mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's what we're trying to do here, and, and you so. are doing it, and, and, and you're being very humble about it. But you're bringing a new energy. I mean, listen, when you you bring some of the people that you have. Uh, uh, as colleagues and as potential uh, people of influence in this town and bring them here into the, the building uh, at CPI. You know, I feel like f- for once, you know, there's hope. You got a, <laughs> a new group of, of leaders that are not so tied to wanting that that brass ring here in Washington, D.C. They're wanting to come for change, mm-hmm. but not so that they can be called – you know, congressman or congresswoman. So there's a lot of chaos going on right now because the midterms did not go as expected. Right. Um, What is your advice to people who want to change things in this town? How do you how do you navigate choppy waters like that people are in the next? Yeah, choppy waters and chaos is always a an opportunity for um, advancing, you know, a particular cause. And so when you do that, uh, my advice to all of them is look at the choppy waters. What can we learn from them? But we also need to do this. You know, you, you don't win elections by saying I'm not them. You win elections, as Donald Trump can tell you, by maybe saying I'm not them, but then more importantly saying this is who I am. This is what I stand for. And this is how we're going to get it done. And so for that that individual that's discouraged and anybody who says, well, from a Republican standpoint that, oh, the midterms came out just fine. They're not telling the truth. You know, if so first you have to accept the fact that if there was a red wave indeed going to happen. It didn't happen. So why didn't it happen? Well, uh, again, it's that authenticity. You, you got to find people who are willing to stand up uh, for what is right and, and what is good uh, on Main Street, not on K Street. Well, I think that you're right that, that chaos is an opportunity. And I think that uh, the nice thing is, is that uh, everything that we've been saying for years has been proven right. The establishment ran on a vapid, empty agenda. You know, this literally it was. You know, uh, you know, Joe Biden likes his ice cream cone. So you know, the left had orange man bad. It was ice cream man bad. That was basically it. And, you know, scary <laughs> well pictures said, of yeah, Nancy yeah. Pelosi. Yeah. Um. And and they lost pretty yeah. dramatically. And it yeah. didn't. You know, this candidate quality shibboleth has been thrown around. Their favorite candidates didn't do yeah. well, and 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 because of that, no one did. Um. What are you excited for? 
in the next few years. Listen, I'm excited about the potential that a very marginal Republican majority hopefully can accomplish. And and by that, uh, I think that what happens is when you have to count every vote, you listen to every voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, and hopefully – that's the first time that your listeners are hearing that. If you have to count every voice, uh, every vote, you have to listen to every voice. Well, this is probably the first time that I know of uh, in the last decade where every voice matters. Uh, and so I'm optimistic that there could be some systemic changes in the way that Congress does business. Hopefully those changes set a precedent for not just Republican uh, Congresses to follow. But for Democrat Congresses to follow, if you have a more open process for amendments and the ability to get bills to the floor, uh, that's what a representative form of government's all about. So hopefully uh, that happens. So I'm optimistic there. Not as optimistic that we're going to curtail spending. Um, I am more optimistic that a limited government is starting to be uh, something that uh, men and women uh of all ages, and especially that newer generation come are starting to embrace. You know, a more limited government is what Washington D.C. should be all about, and uh, so I'm I'm optimistic about both of those things. Well, from your lips to God's ears, um, <laughs> and uh, Chief, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks. Take care. Thank you again to Chief Meadows for coming on our rinky-dink little podcast. It does mean a lot to us that he would do so, and I feel slightly more comfortable having invited him on at this stage at the end of season two than I would have if uh, we shook him down for one of those first five interviews because we've really come a long way, and I'm going to take this opportunity to brag a little bit on what American Moment has achieved uh, here uh, as we reach the Christmas of 2022. we're going to get pretty close to our two-year anniversary here by the time you're listening to this, and there'll be more reflections when we actually hit that date on February 24th of 2023. However, uh, it's worth thinking about what happened this year exactly. You know, I came to work every week, it felt like, frustrated that we hadn't gotten enough done the week prior. Um, and then you actually take a look back and you realize that's kind of bunk. Um, we got a lot done this year, and it wasn't me. It was it was my wonderful co-founders and our employees at American Moment who worked tirelessly uh, through thick and thin, through good times and bad, through paternity leave and more to actually get things done in a nimble and effective way for our organization. This year, we were covered by basically every single major media outlet there is, and we didn't have a PR team trying to solicit and press the flesh to get that done. It happened of its own accord because people thought what we were doing here was noteworthy, whether it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico and Axios, The Atlantic, uh, or any other publication. They found something to pay attention to and notice here at American Moment this year. Why? Because we were doing what we said we would do. We've built this network of over a thousand strong now, talented, capable, committed young people who are going to staff presidential administrations, congressional offices, and public policy organizations in the years to come. Uh, Those people have arrived, and more often than not, every person we send to the Hill in this case is the youngest in their category. Uh, We've uh, not even realized it sometimes how impressive the people that come through our doors are but we are extremely blessed that 
we aren't making amazing people. We're finding them and we're helping provide them the professional connections and the opportunities they need in order to be the best versions of themselves, serving the worldview that we care about here at American Moment. And that worldview remains as essential to what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis as ever. One of the things that I'm sure some of you can imagine is that Washington has this acculturating effect to the people who go to it. And one of the risks that we were always cognizant of is that we could easily find ourselves sort of assimilated into the traditional way of thinking about certain issues on the right. That didn't happen. And I want to talk a little bit about a specific case in which we were able to stand athwart the mob here in D.C. and take a different perspective. When that war in Ukraine started uh, in March of this year, in February, I guess, uh, there were a ton of organizations that were keeping their powder very dry. They weren't really saying much about what they thought. If anything, they were parroting the party line and were escalating ourselves dramatically into a full tilt conflict with a nuclear armed power. We took a different Tack. We uh, worked with our partners at TAC, the American conservative mark magazine, and we hosted a conference on a 40-day turnaround period called Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security. And in that conference, we brought the full tilt, hardcore take at the time that maybe we were going too far. Ultimately, everything that was said at that conference has aged exceptionally well. And now, you can draw a direct line from the coalitions and communities and opportunities for new leaders to rise, whether they were members of Congress or businessmen, uh, at that conference to a growing consensus on the right that a more realistic and restrained foreign policy must be essential to our governing agenda moving forward. We were able to expand far beyond just that event to more complicated programming that helped showcase our, our ability to put together real professional opportunities for the people in our cadre. You know, in year one, we just had our fellowship for American statecraft. But in year two, we added twin programs on either side of that fellowship. One for people more junior. There's uh, hundreds of interns that get brought to DC every single year. We wanted to meet them and find the ones that had what it took. We spun up AM Fridays, a series of 10 lectures across the summer and then also across the spring, where we brought in the congressional interns from all the best offices and some of the, uh, you know, less concerned ones as well, peeling through them, finding the ones who shared our beliefs and taking them to new heights, being able to help them in a differential way that the, the mass of opportunities in DC aren't necessarily able to do. On the other side of things, we launched Foundations of American Statecraft, a more advanced series of programmings across different issue areas as it makes sense designed to help credential already uh, junior staff into taking on more senior roles. The first one of those was Foundations of American Statecraft, Conflict, Foreign Policy, and Diplomacy. It was on foreign policy. It went exceptionally well. That will return here in just a few short weeks. Look for the application on our website. And then we did Foundations of American Statecraft, Congressional Process, and Paradigm Shift, a retreat and subsequent lecture series we hosted where we tried to prepare our cadre for work on the Hill in this new Congress, working for fantastic members and middle-of-the-road ones alike to make sure that they can be maximally effective on day one. Um, we're extremely, extremely grateful for everything we've been able to achieve this year. This podcast is sort of the tip of the iceberg in that it's the 10% you see, and it's gotten to be a pretty big iceberg at that. Almost any guest we ask to come on comes on. And so there's been just this absolutely fantastic, uh, you know, uh, 
generative effect of having people on this show that you guys like to listen to. You share that show with your friends and they share it with other people and the steady stream of incoming people and talent that come into our network through this show and the coalitional opportunities we're able to build through it. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for being uh, such good friends of American Moment. If there's anything we can do for you, send me an email at Sarab at American Moment or Nick at American Moment, and we will do our best to serve the audience of this show and the community of deeply committed, uh, high character, and super right-wing, talented young people that we've tried to drag into this fight uh, as long as we can and as long as our fantastic supporters um, uh, each other and God allow us to do so. Thank you and we will see you next season. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.